Hi, this is Nick Dawson, the editor-in-chief of TalkHouse Film, and you're listening to the TalkHouse Film Podcast. If you know who Max Landis is, you almost certainly have an opinion of him. If you don't, well, here's a thumbnail sketch. Landis is a prolific screenwriter, though frankly, that's an understatement. In 2015, he published on his website a blog post entitled A List of Every Script I've Ever Written for Those Crazy Enough to Read It, which gave loglines for the 71 feature screenplays he'd written during his then 29 years. And Landis's written output is not restricted to final draft documents, as he's tweeted more than 52,000 times today. You get unfiltered Landis on Twitter, where his buyer promises volatile opinions, girlishly excited confusion, advice on writing, dating, and wildly personal introspection. The bio also states that he always makes a bad first impression. Landis got his first screenplay produced with the fan footage movie Chronicle in 2012. He loves playing with and putting his own unique spin on existing forms, genres, and stories. And late last year saw the release of his revisionist Victor Frankenstein, starring Daniel Radcliffe and James McAvoy. And Mr. Wright, a hitman rom-com with Sam Rockwell and Anna Kendrick, follows in a few weeks. Those movies were all directed by other people, but Landis' debut feature as director, Me, Him, Her, an LA-set romantic comedy that is as idiosyncratic and bubbling over with energy and ideas as Landis himself, is now in theatres. The release of Me, Him, Her was a perfect opportunity to do a podcast with Landis, who chose to speak with the great Joe Dante, the director of three of Landis' favourite movies, Inner Space, Explorers and Gremlins 2, as well as such beloved films as the original Gremlins, Matinee, The Burbs, Small Soldiers and Piranha. Dante, who is friends with Landis' father, John Landis, has known Max for years, and so the two immediately dove into a conversation that covers, in addition to me, him, her, Max's ultimate screenwriter tattoo, the great directing wisdom he gained after making this film, fake movie announcements, the particular thrill of watching a film in a theatre with an audience, the death of big movies with personality, and a pretty phenomenal pitch for Gremlins. Oh, and stick around to the very end for the reveal about what Max had been doing while talking to Joe. Buckle in and enjoy a very fun 35 minutes. First of all, Joe, thank you for doing this. This means the world to me. Ah, uh, that's great. I'm not quite sure what it is I'm doing, but I'm here. Uh, no, they didn't tell me what you're doing either. They were like, well, they you... didn't tell me either. So <laughs> we'll discover it with our souls. The marketing for this movie has been such a clusterfuck in such a real way. Uh, they put me in charge of like promotion to my very limited fan base who I don't even know are the audience for this movie. I don't know who the audience for this movie is. Some people really like it. Other people don't like it as much. Some people hate it. Well, I think it would be helpful to mention the name of the movie. The movie is called Me, Him, Her. And I, I made it in 2013. And it is such a time capsule of 2013 that it opens with a song by the band Fun. Uh, <laughs> and by the way, so so for those of you... Uh, you're. Most of you are probably unfamiliar with me, but for, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Joe, first of all, read a book. Se- second, of all, uh, second of all, this is special for me because Joe is the director of three of my favorite films of all time. Uh, Explorers, uh, Inner Space, which to me, the movie Inner Space is so good that it's bizarre to me it isn't brought up constantly. It's a lot like Enemy Mine in that respect. Uh, features a, a, one of the same actors, but... It, it, the, these movies that somehow somehow a trashy piece of schlock like Predator became a classic and Enemy Mine and Inner Space are never brought up. And then, of course, my favorite film of all time, Gremlins, 
too. And uh, the criminally underrated Small Soldiers. Joe is is one of the better directors in history. So well, so having you talking to I wouldn't go me, that far, but uh, I, I uh, it's 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 very nice to hear that. But yeah, I should say talking to a director who's actually quite good. Uh, uh, I, I, uh, most of the things I would have said about this movie's content, uh, I've said in other interviews. So do you want to, I think maybe we should try to focus on like the quote unquote, as much as this term bothers me, craft of directing or. Well, I, uh, I, I I saw the movie yesterday. You saw me him her. Of course. Holy shit. How how could I, how could I show up for this and not have seen your new movie? Um, and I, I, obviously, you know, in the tradition of, uh, Preston Sturgis and Billy Wilder, uh, you, I get the feeling that you prefer writing for yourself to direct as opposed to writing for other people to direct. I don't know yet. I don't know yet. If I'm being completely... Because the movie is so you. And there's so, there's <laughs> so much dialogue in the picture that is, you know, redolent of the way you talk. Uh, and also the second lead... Uh, is sort of a Max Landis kind of character. He's a little more basic bitch than me. He's a little less weird of a guy than I am. Well, I, that goes without saying. But, <laughs> <you know. laughs> and, and another thing that's interesting about the movie uh, is uh, how out there it is in its sexuality without being exploitive or, you know, it, it's not an exploitation movie. It's more like an Altman movie. You know, it's it's a bunch of characters in a situation that they have to deal with, and uh, it, there are extreme moments in it, uh, but it's very well cast, and um, it looks great. It, I don't know how much it cost, but it, it, it or how long it took you to shoot, but it really looks good. It's incredible that you say that because the main thing I think it looks great too. The main thing I see in reviews is how it looks like a cheap sitcom, which I, is just not real. Well, I don't think that's true because cheap sitcoms don't have so many location shots. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. No, it's also an LA movie. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's it's a, it's it's a quintessential modern LA movie. Uh, it's about you know people of a certain age and how they behave and what they do and where they go. Uh, it, I admit that sometimes it's hard for a geezer like me to to relate to the things that they do because I haven't done those things for a number of years. Um, but I thought it was refreshing and and fun and and in a weird way very personal. It was extremely personal. Well, that you said, like, writing for me to direct. The reason I directed this one is because it was very personal. You know, I, I, I never intended to be a director. Um, I've become one more and more just in, in my YouTube presence. Um, and I enjoy it so much that I sort of thought, yeah, this is the, the one I'm going to direct. I thought I knew how to direct this one better than any of my other stuff. But in reality... All of my stuff is tonally complex. I sometimes feel really bad handing uh, a director one of my scripts. Because like in my new script, Deeper, I think everyone tells me like, Deeper is so funny and so scary. And it's like such a great compliment. But then the producers looking at it go, okay, which directors can do funny and scary? And I realize that what's achievable on the page is not so much readily achievable in real life. Well, uh, there needs to be a there needs to be a relationship between the writer and the director if they're not the same person. Yeah. And uh, the worst thing that can happen is that somebody takes a job for the wrong reasons for a script that they really don't like and they think they they could improve it, you know, with their directing. 
that's 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 a dangerous road to go. Uh, you you can't do that. You have to you have to be in sync about the material. And I've done a couple of pictures where I I always like having the writer around if possible uh, because an actor may have a problem with a line or there's any number of reasons why you'd want to have the writer there and, and, and I can point to many instances in my movies where things are much better because the writer was there to solve the problem along with me and not I wasn't by myself um, on set I'd hear my lines that worked on paper and didn't work coming out of the actor's mouths and thank god I would just go change it we would change it live well, yeah, you have to. I mean, if it's not working, you have to make it work. And if it, if it means not adhering to the words, it's not Shakespeare. I mean, you know, it, it, it's not the cadence of the words, it's the thoughts and what they mean. How dare you imply that I'm not Shakespeare? Well, I, <laughs> I, I knew sooner or later it would, it would dawn on you. But, uh, and and uh, now I, I, I must tell you, I was in, in almost complete ignorance of this movie. I didn't know it existed until, uh, <laughs> until yesterday. I've been on your show so many times. I know, but you never said anything about it. Yeah, because I didn't know when it was ever going to come out. This movie has had such an uphill battle in distribution and such an uphill battle. Well, it's not alone. I mean, let's face it. I mean, movies of that, uh, you know, this is a small movie. And movies um, of that type uh, are, uh, the indie business is really falling apart. Yes. Because the uh, the number of distributors who've gone out of business is, is, is huge. So many movies are trapped in this distribution vortex well, I mean, they can sit around for a year, like my last picture, uh, before anybody decides to pick them up. And then when they do pick them up, what they do is they give them the token release that they need the 10 theaters in various places in the, in, in the country for one, I have, one I have I have two theaters. Well, John Carpenter made a picture that had one theater. Is that the room? Or the, uh, the, the ward. The ward. Played, it, it played at, uh, at the AMC Santa Monica at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, to to qualify for something, you know, whatever, something to fulfill some contract or something. John fucking Carpenter. Before it went right, before it went to VOD. And now the thing about VOD is that you don't really make pictures to be seen on TV. You make pictures because you want to make pictures. I grew up, you know, in a in a movie culture where we went to the movies and we saw movies with audiences on big screens, and it makes a complete difference. I mean, people who saw the Marx Brothers on a big screen with a big audience know who the Marx Brothers are, but people who have only seen them on TV have no idea who the Marx Brothers yeah. are. Because it's just not the same experience. No, it's communal. But when you go to VOD, uh, the first thing that comes up when you type in the name of your movie is the pirate sites. And there are five, six, seven, eight pirate sites where you can see the movie uh, and the people who made the movie don't get any money. And that's how most of these movies work now. You don't get money from making feature films. You get money from doing television. Because television, they pay you. You know, you come in, you do the job, and they, they give you a check, and it clears. For movies, it's extremely difficult to monetize, uh, you know, to, to justify taking the amount of time it, it takes to make a theatrical film, unless it's a studio picture or a superhero movie or... or See, whenever I say this, whenever I say this, all the yakos online tell me that I'm negative and that I'm cynical and I'm whining and that I shouldn't... I should shut up because people would be lucky to You know, one of the great things about being cynical, you're never disappointed. <laughs> I'm cynical and yet I'm constantly disappointed. <laughs> it's because I think I'm not a true cynic. It's because I think in my heart, I wake up every day and I'm like, I want this day to be the best day the ever. The last refuge of the romantic. Yeah, I mean like somewhere up my own ass is where the last refuge of the romantic <laughs> is. I, uh, you know, I, I have this thing now I do, which is, which helps and it's embarrassing because it's like someone, something you'd see someone do in an 80s movie. Where every morning I look in the mirror 
and I say, I'm going to make someone's day better today. And I actually do this and it's been working. It puts me in a better mood. And it's so corny. It's so corny. And no, I did it the first time as a joke. I, I did it. And, and then maybe you have a secret power that you don't know about. Well, the secret power is that then you constantly notice ways to make people's day better because you're looking for it because you've set this goal. So you find yourself holding doors for people or helping people carry stuff. And it doesn't feel like you're being a good Samaritan. Oh, your parents would be so proud. Oh, no, they would never. You should have seen them <laughs> they last. They brought you up so well. They're no, so they They're so polite. So polite. I, polite, I don't know. But I am, I do like altruism. It, it's funny. I, I've gotten so cynical about the business. I'm getting a tattoo, Joe. I'm finally getting a tattoo. It's the ultimate screenwriter tattoo. It says, we'll see. <laughs> right? It's the ultimate screenwriter tattoo. Because it's, there are no guarantees. You know, they announced this week, they announced that I sold this movie with David Ayer to Netflix. And there was this big announcement. Netflix puts up all this money for the thing. That didn't happen. <laughs> like, I found out about it online. And Ayer texted me just a bunch of question marks. <laughs> I, uh, I have a lot of titles that are on my IMDb list of things that were announced that I was going to do. Right. And of course, none of them ever happened. And, no. it's, and it's murder to get them to take them off. And everybody, and, and then the, the, you know, the yakosphere, everybody sort of goes, well, then why did they announce it? And because no one gets how arbitrary it well, is. And also because the variety needs something to print. How did you fund this movie? Uh, Big Beach funded it. Big Beach read the script. And, you know, as is the case often, my scripts, I don't know if you've ever read any of my stuff. I think I'm really pretty okay at it. Mm. Um, and well, yeah, I think you've had some success. A little bit. Uh, <laughs> every time you, every time you open up the paper, it's like another script sold. But now, of course, we—it's all bogus. No, we're not, yeah. <laughs> but well, still. they never announce the ones that I actually sell because no one knows. <laughs> It's—I've reached this like dumb point of confusion where they're announcing movies that don't actually exist. It's and a then, circle of confusion. The circle. Oh, <laughs> very, very deeply said. For those not watching live on CNN right now. Joe and I are sitting in my office in the former, my former management company, Circle of Confusion, which is currently producing my TV show. And therefore his joke is... Sort of an in-joke kind of. Hilarious. You have brought, been brought... This is being brought in on the in-joke with filmmaker Joe Dante <laughs> and uh, film... film. So anyway, they funded the movie. They, they had enough money to just sort of make the movie? What, yeah, what, man. What did it cost? Uh, four. Four? Yeah. It, it it looks like one. No, no, it doesn't. It look like one. It's it's. It, I, I that's probably why it looks twice as good as my last movie, which only oh. cost two. <laughs> well, can, can I teach you a trick? Low light with the Alexa. That just. I mean, like I wish I'd. I wish I'd done that because it makes everything look like it cost ten. It looks like wow, this looks really cinematic. <laughs> just like just like low light, natural light, Alexa. You know, medium tight on the actors. Well, you know, a little bit loosey handheld, not too loose. Wow, this is a really good film. <laughs> you know, like, and, and it's, I, I, these are all tricks I learned after directing a movie. If I, dude, if I, one of the things that fucking infuriates me about me, him, her, is if I'd known as much about just cinema, cinematographical, if that's a word, control, as I do now, me, him, her would look completely different. It's one of those things where, like, what your movie looks like 
I didn't know how directing worked. Have you ever seen my short Wrestling Isn't Wrestling? No, I don't think so. It's a, it's a short I made. I think it might be my best directing work. I mean, it's not a movie like Me, Him, Her, which is much more competent. But in terms of editing and style and pacing and control of the flow of story, really, I learned all that on set, day to day. Mm-hmm. How, so, lo- how long is the short? Uh, how long is the short? Yeah. 21. And it's on YouTube. I think we're up to two and a half million because, yeah, right? It's weird, right? Uh, it's because I, uh, or maybe just two. I think I think Death and Returns at two and a half or even three. But uh, ignore that noise. Some They're moving a body outside. But Jesus, what is that? It's the coffee lady. It's the coffee lady pushing the car. <laughs> but I mean, like, I mean, did you find, I guess I'm now I'm interviewing you, but... A thing that I noticed during the movie was that I would texturally learn things about directing as it was going, and then in my head, frantically want to go back and redo scenes using what I now yeah, knew. But that's that, that'll that, that that will continue into your elderly years. It drove me fucking insane. <laughs> that's the way it is. I mean, every look, every time you make a movie, you learn another mistake not to make. But there are so many other mistakes waiting to be made that you never catch up, you know? That's exactly how it feels. I mean, you do get better and you get more confident and you're able to not think about things that the first time out are bothering you but are really minor. Uh, you, you, you get to compartmentalize about what's, what's important and what you really need and what's the point of the scene, what's the, what's the moment that you really have to work on to make work and which moments can you sort of slough off because you don't have time. Usually there's just not enough time. Can I ask you... How did you learn the, the biggest thing that I'm still learning and that's better now in my shorts and better now for me on the page for having directed me and her. How did you learn pacing and controlling pacing? I think it's because I started as an editor. And when I got to the set of my first movie, which was co-directed by me and Alan Arkish, uh, I had the sound unit, he had the silent unit and we were working simultaneously, literally, with the same actors. What movie is this? Hollywood Boulevard. Uh, It's a movie about uh, a cheap movie company making cheap movies. And the reason it was so cheap was because Roger Corman said, you can make a movie for me, but it's got to be the cheapest movie we've ever made here, and you've only got 10 days to shoot it, and you have to keep making trailers at night. That is incredible. So we managed to do it uh, through concerted effort. Um, But I didn't know anything about actors. I didn't know anything about movies except for the fact that I had a million movies in my head because I was a film buff. And it was not until the I got to shoot the last shot of the movie that I realized that I had never done any over-the-shoulder shots. And I had to do it because it was Dick Miller and Robbie the Robot. And there was no way to get a shot of Dick Miller without getting part of Robbie the Robot in the shot. And so it was, and I, oh my gosh, that's an over. I didn't do any overs. And when you go see the movie, there are no there are no overs. All the shots of people talking are straight. Are dead shots. on. They're all dead on. The the gritty the gritty of the way it works is so secondhand or not secondhand, but it comes to you in ways that are very hard to articulate. Like, oh, this is how we should shoot this because this. Well, yeah, it's it's not. I mean, you you need to be somewhat articulate in order to be able to do that job. But you also, a lot of it has to just come from inside you. It's a lot of it is instinct. 
you know, how to do a scene, how to shoot a scene, how long you take to shoot, how far away you are, what lens you use, what, how, where the actors are standing. I'm still learning lenses. Well, you, and you, and you will. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you don't have to next, you don't have to necessarily know the focal length of the lens to know what kind of lens you want. I mean, you know what you want it to look like, and you know that if you get far away with a long lens, you're gonna com- you're gonna compress everything, and you can make, for instance, a stunt look better because people can't tell how close the people are to actually what's going on. I mean, you learn all those kind of tricks, but um, it, 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 there is a bag of tricks involved in in directing uh, uh, because if there wasn't, there wouldn't be so many directors. But then, past that bag of tricks, there have to be a way to insert your personality into the movie, and that's one of the difficult things it, it, they make it difficult for you especially if the budget is high and you're doing ant-man and the marvel people say well this is what we want and then you say well that's this is what i want and they say well what's more important here the franchise or one one director and the answer was always the franchise and and so the, the higher up the ladder you go uh the more people there are telling you what to do and and to even in the 80s when i was making movies i mean there was a you know a concerted effort depending on who you're working for, to try to make sure that the picture didn't have too much of your personality so that it could be enjoyed by more people. Because as you say, if 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 you're getting bad reviews based on people not liking your personality and the personality oh is your movie the negative then reviews. then then any financier is going to say well you know if we hire him let's not have him do so much personality stuff I always whenever I read a review that seems angry I always find it suspicious because and because those people have the best job in the world and they're complaining that they have to watch movies <laughs> I mean that yes but to me bad movies when you really hate a movie they're usually fun to talk about most bad most bad reviews of movies that I enjoy when when they is when they're funny uh you know I used to like reading bad reviews into of like Roger e, like you know Ebert's big book of uh, all the movies he hated. I hated, 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 hated this movie. Uh, I used to enjoy that until I made a movie. And this before it got reviewed or anything. And I went, God, this is a lot of work. How fucking disrespectful of an idiot fucker would you have to be to have fun, you know, ripping something like this down? No, in- it's, it's, a, it's extreme. Anybody who gets a movie made is a hero. Period. Just to get the movie made. Just forget about the content. Forget about how good it is. That's, that brings you to the Edward syndrome, which is, you know, Edward made, didn't really know how to direct very well. And so he made these weird movies, but they're also weirdly personal. Yeah. And as bad as they are in conventional sense, they, he's, he's so much more famous than he ever imagined he would be. Yeah. Uh, because his movies do have something different. They have a personality and they are endearing in, a, in an odd way. Um, and to be able to, I'm going to go ahead and take that as a as you making a comparison to me for Edward. And uh... no, <laughs> no, I don't think so because, it, I, I, frankly, your material is a little better. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you should read my scripts. My scripts are fucking great. Next movie I direct is going to be fucking great. I won't have to fucking. I have big plans, man. I have this like thing because of dad. Your, your buddy, John Landis, where I have this tremendous instilled reverence for going to a movie theater and seeing a movie. It's like church. It's like church. Yeah. It's like church of story, which to me is like the most meaningful thing. 
And, you know, it bums me out, the idea that movies are becoming a less communal experience. Well, it's unfortunately true. I mean, I, 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 the moment that the lights go down, there's still this possibility that you could be seeing something transcendent. Yeah, something great. Uh, and as much as I like watching, for instance, House of Cards on Netflix in a big, in a big binge, you just don't get that when you turn on your TV and you click your boxes and you go from the Netflix to the, to the click and the thing and this and then the, 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 the little line fills up as it loads and all. it's not the same I'll tell you as sitting in a movie theater and having the lights go down with all these people around you. I'll fucking tell you something that was incredible. Last season of Game of Thrones, there was a group in LA uh, who shall remain nameless. But every week, we would go to a movie theater about a hundred of us and watch the game, the game of Thrones on a movie screen. And Joe, let me tell you from the moment the HBO logo came on to the end of the credits, it was feverish, incredible brilliance. And, and it, you, I never would have got at home. I would have been like, that was a good episode of a TV show in a movie theater with an audience eating popcorn, like hanging out. Mm -hmm. It was thunderously impactful. I remember I watched uh, like the, the finale of Breaking Bad where uh, Chicken Man got blown up. I watched that in a the theater too. And it was like, holy shit. And I've watched that episode since. It's like a good episode of TV. But th that theater, just the context of seeing it big, it changes everything. That's why it kills me that me, him, her, the only way me, him, her is funny. Or me, no, other people is with an audience. But with an audience, it kills because you're like, can you believe this shit? That was true of my last picture, which was a comedy. And when I when I realized it wasn't going to get seen by very many people, and and even in, even theatrically, it didn't. There were like five people in the theater. I mean, there was not like a a, a big a crowd. Theater, yeah. I mean, you can have a screening full of people and it plays great, but you have two people, it doesn't play great. <laughs> I mean, I took when I was when I was in college, I took, I I had been to a, a screening of a night at the opera and day at the races. Uh, in Woodstock, New York. One of those in, is really good. When I was in summer camp, but they're both really funny. They're both funny. And I, it was a little art theater, and it was completely full of people. And during Night of the Opera, people were laughing so hard that people had to leave because they were coughing, and they were, like, not being able to breathe. I mean, it was the, one of the funniest things I ever saw. So when I was in college, I got a chance to uh, bring some of my friends to see that same double bill in Philadelphia at some derelict old theater underneath a trestle somewhere. They were like seven people in the audience in this huge theater and the picture just died it just sat there and it's exacerbated by the fact that the marx brothers used to take the, the material out on the road and perform it in front of audiences to figure out how long to leave for the laughs so all the movies when you see them on tv there's a laugh and then they have these long pause which is where the laughs went but when you're watching it on tv there are no laughs and so they just don't work. But you could take those same movies today and run them in a crowded theater. And they are, it's true of Laurel and Hardy. It's true of anybody. And audiences will be in hysterics. But when you watch the same thing on TV at home, it's nice that you can put your feet up. It's nice that you can, you know, pet the cat. But it's not the same. I have always said one of the main things that makes older movies feel dated is that you watch them alone. Yeah. I, I've always felt that way. I mean, like... I remember I saw uh, The Thin Man on a big screen recently. Holy shit! Like, come on! It's fucking fantastic! There's a wonder in that movie that's six minutes long. 
fucking eat that in a redo. Like the, the scene at the party where people keep showing up to the house and everybody's drunk and the dude's trying to kiss him. It's like, what the fuck? And I was watching it with like 200 people and everyone was dying. And like, this is the funniest, smartest movie ever made. When we were walking out, I overheard a girl say to her boyfriend, I didn't know old movies were so funny. <laughs> and I thought, God, that's sad. Oh my God. Joe, I had the coolest experience. I was in a, uh, 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 a nightclub for a trap night. Trap is a type of music that sounds like a mix of dubstep and super heavy rap. Mm -hmm. And there were girls like shaking their butts on the ceiling and like all this crazy shit and all these people going, yeah, yeah. And I was having a really good night and I was really drunk. And it was just one of these old buildings in downtown LA. And I'm walking with my friend Spencer and we're both drunk and we're looking at the bathroom and there's a door and the door is not open but the frame of the door is broken, so the door can't really be closed. And so we go like, oh, we're drunk, you know, let's walk in here. We walk through, there's a hallway. And the hallway is dirty and there's boards on the ground, there's shit everywhere, and we are drunk enough. You know that feeling, it doesn't always come from drunkenness, but when you forget to be scared, you're in a situation where you should be like, this is spooky, but you just don't give a fuck. It's like you're walking around on a set. That, that was exactly how we felt. We walk into this creepy hallway. We walk, there's doors. We walk into another door. We're now like in the belly of this 67 year old building in downtown LA. And we're, there's all these pipes everywhere. It looks like The Shining. You know, it doesn't look like The Shining. It looks like Silent Hill. And we're go opening doors and we just keep opening doors. And then I open a door and there's this giant, just black void looking at me. And I'm like, and Spencer takes out his iPhone case and turns it on to the black void. And there's nothing in the void, even with the light. And so we walk a couple steps in. And we come around and we're behind, it's fallen apart, a movie theater screen. And we're standing on like a slightly raised platform in a fucking movie theater that must have been closed for 20, 30 years. Mm. And we were standing, we took all these pictures of us sitting in the seats, which are all falling apart, there are bugs everywhere. It was disgusting. My clothes got destroyed by sitting in the seats. But then we walked back all dirty into the trap night and they go, were you in the theater? And we're like, yeah. And they're like, get the fuck out. And they're like, <laughs> like we got hustled out like we had been smoking crack. And they're like, you weren't supposed to be back there. Did you leave anything back there? What were you doing back there? And we're like, taking selfies. You know, just like, but it's the, how many ghosts there are in that part of LA of mm. just what used to be down there is fucking nuts. All the closed giant like cineplex, like temples. Yeah, I think there's a lot of big empty spaces there. Giant empty spaces. Fucking incredible. Maybe your movie will play there. <laughs> it's, it'll be one of the, the <laughs> that's the theater they chose for LA. We're not gonna replace the seats, but me and her will be projected on a destroyed old screen. Did I ever tell you, you know, I pitched briefly on Gremlins. Did I tell you what my pitch was? Yeah. It starts as a, it's a found footage movie because they were like, we want to do Gremlins found footage. And I was like, that sounds like a terrible idea. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Because I realized if you got a Gremlin for Christmas, you would be filming it all, all the time. The time. <laughs> if you got a Mogwai. So my movie started with a kid getting two Mogwai, both of which are good. One seems bad, but they are both sweet. And it's this girl gets two Mogwai that don't get along. And she has trouble. She likes one of them more than the other one. There's sort of an ugly one that seems mean. And then she's filming them constantly. And then lo and behold, they get wet. 
and the gremlins multiply. And so for the first act of the movie, it's like a cute animal YouTube video, you know, and we get this good look, this look into these teenagers lives through, I love writing found footage because it's, it, it, it allows you to do scenes. Chronicle is really it, the best example of this is it allows you to do scenes that you would never get in a normal movie because they're so small and weird. Just a camera comes on and someone's just doing a weird dance and then camera turns off again. And, and I wanted it to be for the first act. Oh, cute animals. I'm using these animals to spend more time with this boy I like. I'm using these animals to connect with my mom, who's like, what type of animal is this? And is getting really fixated with Wikipedia and is looking up this incident at the clamp, you know, the clamp tower. And she's like, clamp? Isn't he running for president? You know, like Trump, you know? And, and then the second act is, you know, eat after midnight. There's way more of them. Is like a disaster movie, except for very funny and wacky as the gremlins begin to be everywhere. And you know, they're filming them like, oh Jesus, the town spins out of control. But then what I wanted to do is in the third act of the movie, the gremlins get the camera. And they, they, uh, they are filming our leads. And suddenly, since gremlins are lemurs, man, they move, especially with CG now, I'd want to have a lot of puppet gremlins, but a lot of CG gremlins. So we could have so many, like the big scenes in Clamp. But since I want scenes, I had this idea for this chase where the gremlins are chasing them. And the way they're chasing them is by jumping and running along lampposts and billboards in the side of buildings in the town. But the gremlins think it's so funny to film them that our heroes are running up basically the middle of the street and we are getting a steady cam crane shot as the gremlins are passing the camera back and forth to each other from above chasing the heroes. And you get a third, you suddenly can make it like a real movie because a gremlin can be anywhere. And you know, the, you hear the gremlins saying like, oh, go wide, go wide, go wide. Oh, it looks great. You know, you're like hearing them so impressed with their own filmmaking. I don't know. I, I always wanted to tell so you. So who did it. you pitch this to? Uh, my manager is an agent and then an exec somewhere at Warner Brothers who was like, well, we're not going to reboot Gremlins anytime soon. And then apparently they've been trying for years. <laughs> uh, and they're like, we just can't break it. How can a movie be scary and funny? It doesn't make sense. Now, before we go, are you going to tell them what you've been doing all the while we've been talking? Uh, sure. Okay, so uh, I have a number of Multicolored Sharpies. Uh, this, this falls under the rubric of obsession. Yeah, I, I like rainbows. Uh, I, in the time Joe and I have been speaking, I have taken a number of Nerf darts and drawn smiley faces on them with Sharpies. And then I've also drawn a rainbow on, uh, on the top of a water bottle. And then on the other top of a water bottle, I, I drew a smiley face and then I started to draw a rainbow. I also did a big spiral on the wall, um, and it's because... Multitasking. Yeah, it's because my brain pretty much is always going in two directions at once. And if he hadn't been diversifying while he was doing this, he would have talked so fast that none of you would have understood anything he said. That's real. That's, that I'm, not I'm not kidding. <laughs> that's, a real, that's a real problem I have, is I need to slow myself down by doing little stuff... Joe, thank you so much for doing. Oh, thank you so much. For oh, he spilled his water on me. Oh, <laughs> I'm melting. The room is flooding. <laughs> it was fun. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this, man.
This is Nick Dawson from Talkhouse Film, and you've been listening to Max Landis and Joe Dante on the Talkhouse Film Podcast. This episode was recorded by Derek Olds and edited by Elia Einhorn. For more filmmakers talking film and TV, visit thetalkhouse.com slash film. Subscribe to Talkhouse Film and Talkhouse Music Podcasts on iTunes, where you can find all our previous episodes. And while you're there, please rate and review if you can. 